Greetings, dear listener, and welcome back to another episode of Comology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. I'm Nick Johannesson, your host, and for those of you curious about the seasonal status here in suburban Norway, and I might just do this every week, I can report that the mornings are marginally less, less frosty, quite a bit more moist, uh, it has been very windy, and I think it might be time soon to go out and play in the leaves. Now, as previously mentioned, I have set up a Patreon now, so that those of you who would like to support the podcast can easily do so. I'll probably mention this every week, but uh, you can find it at patreon.com slash gomology. There's also links in the show notes. Uh, sadly, no new supporters this week, so thanks to those of you already supporting. I appreciate your continued kindness. Supporting the podcast is totally optional, of course. I'm not going to gatekeep my conversations. All 131 episodes are freely available for all to enjoy. Okay, so what is this week's episode? Well, join me as I head to Dorset for a chat with Rebecca. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, today we're going to lay most of the serious stuff aside and uh, focus on happy dressing. My guest is author Rebecca Smith, and would you like to introduce yourself, Rebecca? I'd love to. Thank you very much, Nick. I'm really happy to be on this episode. Um, just one thing, though, because although the book is called The Happy Dresser, and happy does tend to be a word that we associate with lightness, actually, there's quite a lot of shade and quite a lot of darkness in being the happy dresser. It's not always that lovely, light, happy, jolly, colourful place. So perhaps some of that serious stuff will come up. Perhaps it won't, but who knows? Yeah, I actually knew that having read the book. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought I'd, I'd bring it up early. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a nice little pun on the title. Because you have just published your new book, The Happy Dresser. I have. So before we get into the book, would you like to let us know a bit about who you are, where you're coming from? Mm, yes. So who you are today. I come from a family where clothes were really, really important. So from, from being absolutely tiny, every memory I have starts from probably the, the outfit I had on. So if I think about something from, say, when I was six, seven growing up 12 teenage years the outfit comes first that precedes the actual memory so clothes have always been really important to me I had a Saturday job when I was 15 in a fabulous boutique in Kensington in London and that just started it off for me I was just I always knew I was going to work with with clothes and and wanted to work in fashion I wanted to be a fashion designer I went to art school I was never really good enough to reach the level I wanted to reach. Um, I got rejected from St. Martin's at 18. And mm. as far as I was concerned, that was it. My life was over. I was never going to aspire to be anything particularly great in fashion. So I continued to work in retail for a long time, um, worked with lots of lovely brands, had a great fashion retail career, um, Was it came over to um, when... when Gap came to Europe. I was part of that very early days with the Gap in, in London. 
Um, I've worked for some brilliant menswear companies. I've worked as a, a session stylist um, for editorial. I've produced fashion shows. I've, I've kind of run the whole, everything you could do in the industry at some point. I've probably done it. I was a boutique buyer, for instance. Have, I did have my own label. And then towards, gosh, when was it? 2016, I decided that along with the other qualifications, which were predominantly art qualifications, I had a BA in fashion design and I had a postgraduate diploma in fashion entrepreneurship and various other things. I wanted to do something a bit more serious. And so I applied to do a master's in applied positive psychology. And I'd never done anything sciencey before at all. And during that course, I started researching the connection between what we wear and our overall well-being. And I created some as, as a research study and I wrote some papers and that research was published in some quite prodigious fashion journals as well as a psychology journal. And that was kind of the start of me thinking about this connection um, between my personal clothing and how I feel and being really interested and intrigued how other people use clothes both to match their mood or to change their mood or to what we communicate with them. All of that is a you know, very big umbrella, but all of that kind of stuff. So that's, that's where I, I kind of approached writing the book from, certainly. I'm pleased your life didn't end when you were rejected by St. Martin's. Well, yes, it, it did feel that that was, uh, it was, you know, it was hard. It's very difficult. The, the, the things we say to young people at 18, 19, you know, it's often children of that age have this very black and white thinking. And I did genuinely feel like a complete failure and that, that you know, nothing was ever going to go right for me ever again. <laughs> and it's still, yeah, still really is is in there and I've actually gone back and and taught on modules at Central Central St Martins so clearly you know in the long term it did me no real harm (laughs) (laughs) well that's good that's good so can you talk a bit more about the research you were doing and what sort of things you found yeah so I am very interested in small qualitative research rather than these kind of big data sets that I think it's probably still quite fashionable in psychology, but certainly in 2016, these kind of mega data set type research things were were really fashionable. And I wanted to look very much at the actual lived experience of a small group of people wearing clothes that, and I used the term made them happy because it was a very good shorthand to begin the conversation. So I had six research participants, three men, three women. My youngest uh, participant was 21 and the oldest was 86. So I kind of tried Mm. to cover as wide a range as I could. Now, I specifically asked them to come along to to the interview to collect the data with me, wearing an outfit that made them happy and asking them a few questions to start off with, but just really allowing the kind of richness of the conversation to inform the data I collected. And then, of course, you know, you have all this data and then what do you do with it? So I used something called interpretive phenomenological analysis, IPA. And you're 
kind of combing through all of your research. So you listen to it over and over and over again, and you're trying to find almost like a rhythm and a nuance and a music in, in the data. And then you transcribe it literally word by word, pause by pause. And you start then to group certain themes together. And you do this for each participant. And then you take all of these words. And off the top of my head, I can't remember how many words I ended up with. But it was, it was a, you know, a, a book length of words. It was around somewhere between 90,000, 100,000 words. And I literally printed them out and started chopping them into pieces and collaging them and <laughs> creating all these amazing right. diagrams, which were, my office was just covered with all these words and images and things. And then started to narrow that down. So you've, you know, you've gone into this really wide scope and then you're bringing it down, down, down and you're picking out certain ideas that come up over and over again in the conversations that you've had. So from that, I came up with this idea that we use clothing in a kind of triangle way towards um, increasing our well-being. One way is using it to quite deliberately enhance our moods so we're having a bad day and we think um, that outfit made me feel good last time I was wearing it I'm going to put that on again and see if that makes me feel any better so it's kind of intentionally managing our moods and then we've got another aspect which is to do with creating relationships so we might feel that, um, we might not even notice it, but, you know, sometimes we'll wear something that will spark a conversation with a stranger or with someone else. So I we're, know. yeah, so we're, you know, we, we're, and relationships are the key to our well-being. In, in, across the board in psychology, every psychologist will say to you, in order to, to live a long, meaningful, happy life, it's relationships, 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 you know, loneliness is a route to not feeling great so we've got this managing mood and then we've got this relationship aspect and then there's another aspect which is a kind is related to a branch of psychology that's to do with now let me pronounce this correctly it's a greek word eudaimonic well-being and it's to do with having a meaning and purpose in life mm. and that seems very far removed from the way many of us you think about and use our clothing but these particular participants who had chosen to wear these happy outfits when they talked about their clothes they talked about really quite deep things they talked about spirituality they talked about making a difference in the world they talked about feeling that somehow being creative with their identity and with communicating through their clothes they were making the world a better place. And, you know, if you take those three ideas together, if you imagine, you know, these, I had perhaps two hours with these individuals and they were wearing the same outfit the whole time and somehow that outfit they had on encompassed some of these really big psychological and philosophical ideas. So, yeah. <laughs> It makes me want to ask the people you had in for these sessions, were they very unnaturally spiritual, philosophical, no. or 
were they just regular folks? I mean, to to be completely fair and to be very uh, transparent here, in order to find my participants, I had to find people who were happy to talk about clothes. That, that does narrow it down a bit. Yeah. And so therefore, and obviously also having worked for so many years in the fashion industry, my network of people for recruiting did come by and large from fashion. So one of the participants was a catwalk model. One was a fashion influencer. Uh, One was an outsider artist. One was a vintage trader. And the other one had just finished a fashion communication degree. So these were people who who were, you know, fashion people, if you like, for want of a better expression. But they weren't certainly weren't people that considered themselves spiritual. And it was, yeah, it was really interesting how those ideas came up. So the sort of big question right now then is what made these clothes happy for these people? Were there any common denominators? Uh, not actually in the outfits, no. I mean, if you if you've... I obviously have got photographs and images of the outfits they were wearing at the time and there was no common denominator in them other than they had chosen them in order to express their happiness. Some of them, it's like one, so one of the participants, one lady, she wore lots of bright colours and clashing prints and, you know, you would have looked at her and kind of thought she was quite eccentric in the way she dressed. Um, the... The girl that was the fashion, that had just finished the fashion comms, she was very much, and I, this sounds derogatory as I'm saying it, but it, it's not meant in a derogatory manner, but she was very high street. No, she was a young girl that didn't have that much money and she looked gorgeous and her clothes made her happy, but she very much dressed, you know, the kind of Zara mango, <laughs> yeah. the way that so many so many people do wear clothes. So there was there was certainly you couldn't look at this whole as a group this group as a whole and say ah oh, okay they all wear bright colours or they all wear vintage or they all wear there was definitely none of that wasn't apparent at all you couldn't you couldn't thread them by looking at them no so it wasn't the fact that everyone was wearing tweed and hence no. incredibly happy <laughs> of course no <laughs> right. and we all know that's just the you know the happiest out the happiest uh, fabric ever. Well, I was, I was sort of hoping. Yeah, but, just throwing it out there. But was it memories, experiences? There was a lot that? of that. There was a lot there. I mean, and and it's something that certainly in the book I have explored a lot more in my own delving into my own relationship with clothes. For me personally, memories and the attachment I feel to certain pieces, and not actually just those pieces, but it might be that, for instance, um, in fact, this is, this is a story that someone told me at a very well-being conference that I put on in London a couple of years ago. And this woman came up to me afterwards and she said, you know, should I've always loved the kind of Diana von Furstenberg jersey wrap dresses. She said, I had no idea why I loved them. It's just always been something that when I've worn those dress, type of dresses, they've made me feel great. And I thought, oh, it's because they're very feminine and the fabrics are nice. And she said, listening to you, I suddenly realised it's nothing to do with that at all. She said, my grandmother used to wear dresses like this all the time when I was younger and I'd completely forgotten. She said, I suddenly realised every time I put that on, even though I wasn't consciously thinking of her, that lovely connection of warmth and comfort and 
and feeling safe and secure was all wrapped up in this one style of dress. So, yeah, I find that really interesting how when we start to just be a bit more curious about why we dress in a particular way and why we're attracted to these particular garments, that often memory memories are there. Kind of emotional time travel, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Now, in the book, I was quite surprised because right at the start, you have a listing of your wardrobe. Mm -hmm. Now, that would be one of my biggest secrets. <laughs> it did feel, I mean, I have got a copy of the book in front of me because I can't even begin to remember entirely what those numbers are. But it is quite shocking, I know. Yes, it is quite shocking. But probably not shocking. I mean, I don't think many of us actually get down to looking at the numbers. No. Uh, and we will certainly not admit to them being particularly high. But, I mean, with an interest in clothes, those numbers do kind of add up over time. They do. Um, you know, shall I, shall I come cl completely clean on air here? So I'll start off with the lower number because that was the number I started with when I started in uh so the first time i did this um kind of wardrobe looking at exactly how many items i had was september 2016 <clears throat> and there was 308 items at that time in my wardrobe and that as i'm as i state that's not including tight socks underwear scarves hats belts bags and gym clothes or anything in the ironing pole now I can tell by your face that you're expecting shock when you say the number. <laughs> are you slightly ashamed or are you proud or I mean I'm embarrassed actually that I I am embarrassed that I have that many clothes. I mean what I go on to explain in the book and I'm already feeling like you know I need to really defend myself here because I know for some people that will be a, a you know they'll think oh my goodness me that's just disgusting that someone's got that many clothes. Even when I started this project in 2016, a lot of my clothes I'd had for a very long time. Um, at, at, for a while in my life, I was also a vintage trader. So I had stalls in Spitterfields and stalls in Portobello. So I've always been really interested in buying old clothes and buying pre-loved clothes. Um, I've always been part of a kind of, you know, with girlfriends and things, we'll always swap clothes and and do that kind of stuff which is now called sustainable fashion but you know that's just kind of how many of us have always operated hmm. so in my defense those 308 are not all new items that i've gone out and bought no i i do wonder whether that is a large number or a not so large number I mean, I personally have nothing to, to compare it to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not about to go collecting and riffing through my workout, but yeah, I think I did once a few years ago count, and I had well over a hundred jackets. I, I, I think if you've got well over a hundred jackets, then I don't think there's going to be a huge difference between the sort of amount of clothing that you and I have. And I'm definitely not one to judge. <laughs> You're safe. No, it's a safe, safe space. So you spent quite a lot of time at the start of the book talking about your childhood and how your mother was making clothes and how she was an influence and how she put little labels in all your clothes. Mm. It was very touching. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if that's a thing, you know, all across the world. It's very much a thing and still is a thing in the UK that, you know, we send our children off to school with these name tags in their clothes. Um, I think obviously in in cultures where you have school uniform, that's far more important because, you know, if you've got a school where you've got every little girl that's always going to lose their red cardigan, then it is really important that everyone's names are in them. Um, I I loved... I loved school uniform, really loved my school uniform. I think I write about that in the book, you know, it's something. And I've got that picture of my dress from my prep school when I was eight, which I still own. And it's got my my hand, you know, hand sewn in, label in. As soon as I got to an age where I could sew, as far as my mother was concerned, the job of sewing the school labels in was mine. So <laughs> I did learn, I learned at a very young age, at a very young age to sew. You do also talk about in the book you, that you'd make a lot of your own clothes. Mm, I do, yeah. I have made some of my own clothes, but I can never appreciate them. But you managed oh. to appreciate them. And I okay. Was very... Why? What do you that. mean by that? What do you mean by you can't appreciate them? I always think that even though they turn out quite well made, they are kind of worthless. Um, because oh. I mean, they're never as good as I wanted them to be. And the struggle in making them has always been a lot greater than I hoped for. But when I finished, it's sort of, oh, okay, finished, I'll hang it up and then never look at it again, which kind of defeats the purpose in making it. Hmm. So I would say perhaps not defeats the purpose because I think that the sometimes the purpose in making something is the process and the act of doing it. And that's a really, any time that we are, looking at, at using our hands or, or crafting something it's going to be good for us it's going to be good for our well-being it's going to set off all these like sparks in our brain and almost be like a bit of a workout for our brain trying to solve these problems which sewing is definitely a solution to to problems I would I do wonder why you then feel this need to just kind of set that aside and not feel great about wearing them and what's going on there um you know i don't want to delve too deeply into the into your psychology here, Nick. <laughs> i was just wondering whether it was maybe i'm a, a sort of journey type of person instead of an arrival type of person so for me it's the process of creating something but mm. not enjoying the result as much but can um... i ask another personal question there how do you feel about shopping I don't enjoy shopping much either, um, but I have a weird relationship to that because I don't really enjoy physical shops too much, which is weird because I do buy a fair amount of clothes. Mm. And I do find that if I go into a shop, I will buy a lot less. I very rarely buy anything in a shop because... Once I've been able to look at it, feel it, try it on, it's very rare that something seems worth it. Mm. But Which again um, is the experience. So it's definitely part of that in, with your enjoyment with clothes is definitely about the experience rather than the owning. Yeah, but I'm very easily let myself be seduced by uh, 
florid descriptions online about <laughs> something. <laughs> so I've got no end of stuff that doesn't really fit that well. But, um, mm. Yeah, it's um, mm. complicated. I think that's the thing. You know, it is complicated. It is complicated, and it does. If we start to kind of be curious and to question ourselves about this, it sometimes can lead us into places that we had no idea it, it was part of who we were or part of our personality or part of our psyche. So, you know, why are we more attracted to something? Why do we, why do so many people feel dissatisfied when they do get something home that they've bought equally? I'm sure there are people like you that feel a different sense of attachment to something that they've made themselves that perhaps they're a little bit disappointed. And I'm not trying to put words into what you were saying, but I'm just saying, you know, that could be, is it that disappointment in our skills? Is it our, our, our the difference between what we had in our head we were going to achieve and actually what's there in front of us? You know, what's going on? What is all that about? I find it fascinating. I find it fascinating that clothes that are such a, daily part of our lives that so many people will say they have no interest in actually are saying so much hmm. but there must be a certain amount of people who are interested in clothes and a certain amount who aren't interested in clothes and walking around town you can sort of easily divide them into groups you can see who's made some sort of effort and who Clearly doesn't, and that's fine. With it people don't need mm, to be interested, yeah. but you can, you can tell if someone is is making an effort. But we do all still get dressed every day, so on some level we have chosen. You know, unless you are a child and someone else is buying your clothes, you have actually made some decision to buy something, and okay, you might to say and you know i think it's 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 steve jobs or i'm not very good with remembering these names but one one of those guys no they only wear like a uniform of black trousers and black t-shirts they're still they've still bought the black trousers and the black t-shirts and they still pick up a black t-shirt and a black pair of trousers to wear every day and they will say they have no interest in clothes but they've created such a strong statement in choosing not to have an interest in what they wear Hmm. and that person on that's walking down the road that we might look at and they might have, for instance, you know, tracky bottoms on and trainers and a, and a hoodie and they might say, oh, they've just picked up what's on the floor that morning to put on. But they're still making a statement with those clothes. Mm. Unless it's their mother or their wife or yeah. something who's <laughs> dressed them up. <laughs> and again, in doing that, I would say from a psychological point of view, they're still, still telling us a lot, you know. If they're a grown person who is letting someone else dress them, they're telling us a hell of a lot about who they are. <laughs> Maybe that they just have more important things on their mind or... Well, they Or they think they do. They think they're so much more important that choosing clothes is not or they can't be bothered or they, you know, like someone else being in control or they're so unclear of their own identity and scared of what that might say. I mean, we could make all these assumptions, couldn't we? And I do. You know, I make a, I, I can make a story up about anybody that's walking towards me with the clothes they've got on. I, I will pick those pieces out, and I'll have all this story going on in my head about what that, who they, that person is. 
is that something you do? Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> I, I, I often think that you shouldn't really worry too much because people are so so busy thinking whether they're being judged or not that they're not actually judging other people or looking too closely at them. I mean, I don't, I, so I'm not doing it in a judging way at all. I'm just doing it in such a sense of curiosity because I'm so fascinated by people and I'm so fascinated by what motivates people to, you know, I, I think it's quite, <laughs> I think life is, you know, to get up in the mornings and to get ourselves dressed and to go out there into the world, I don't think that's an easy thing to do <laughs> a lot of the time. No. And to, to keep doing that, um, I, you know, I think it, it, it um, I think it, I think it's deserving of attention. Hmm. Now, something happened to me the other day. I was on my way into the post office, and this guy comes out the other way. He must have been about eighty, but he was wearing an old tweed jacket and a bright green beret. And I was thinking, yeah, that's that's cool. That's it. And I often wonder because people say, oh, old people, they, they're so much better dressers. They wear such wonderful outfits and so forth. And I'm wondering, I mean, once you're old, you might have had these clothes for a long time. So there's things you really love and mm. you're not going out shopping all the time. So you're wearing these clothes. Mm. So you you look comfortable in them. Mm. Whereas young people might be going by Zara or Mango every other day, picking up new stuff and it's a, in a constant flux. And their identities at, at that stage are in a constant flux. And they really, you know, it's. I think it's vitally important that we have a stage in our life of being able to experiment with who we are, with how we look, with what we what we think and feel. Um, and I think if we if we don't have space for that in our lives, that will be very detrimental to us as we get older. And we will perhaps, you know, I always classically think about this idea of of men having a midlife crisis and I think for for certainly um in my personal experience the men I know who 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 you could say have had a midlife crisis and you know have gone out and completely changed the way they live and the way they look it's because for many of them they had corporate jobs for a very long time and they went straight from school to university to these jobs where they were in very rigid boxes and they had to wear particular have a particular look and they never really got a chance to find out who they were or to experiment with their identity or what they wanted from the world so mm. yeah I... my variant would be a little different on that but i did also have a, a really great midlife, cri- midlife crisis about 14 years ago but uh i became a father very young uh, and then multiple children and working a lot and that became the focus. So clothes really sort of completely fell out of focus, as did music. And for very many years, that was that was all. So about 14 years ago, when I restarted, then actually finding myself, reinventing myself a bit, actually finding some joy in being me, came back again. Which I thought was good. Yeah. yeah. And did you notice that your way of dressing changed along with that? Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. It wrapped up pretty quickly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, I, th- I mean, I think it's really important that we we don't get so fixed and rigid, rigid in our idea of who we are that we miss out on that chance to have a bit of reinvention. 
I think that's that's a really I think it's really important at all stages actually in our lives. But obviously, there are certain points, perhaps when our children start to grow up a bit, or they go away to university, or uh, even later in our lives. You know, when 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 we're at retirement age, I think uh, that is also along with the fact that older people may have had those clothes for a long time and they kind of know who they are. I do think for many older people, suddenly they're at retirement age and they put their kind of working life and their working wardrobe away and they can suddenly be a little bit looser and freer with the clothes they're wearing. And, you know, it might be that, that they've had clothes in the back of their wardrobe for a long time, but they only saw the light of day when they were on holiday, for instance, and now they can wear them every day if they want to. (laughs) Yeah. I feel for my part, I'm on a, I hate using the word journey, but things are sort of becoming distilling down. Whereas, uh, say, 10 years ago, I was wearing a much wider segment of things. I'm sort of getting closer and closer to that one outfit. So almost like a uniform in a way. That, that you've that kind of has is a kind of sh- not that's been imposed on you but that you've come to from your own experimenting with clothes yeah it's really a kind of um i did a youtube video this years ago to help people find out the clothes they shouldn't keep in their wardrobe using um, a computer sorting routine called bubble sort where you basically hold up two items and then you throw away the one which loses mm. And I think that's the sort of process I'd be going through now where I sell off a load of stuff. So almost everything that loses goes out Mm. and makes room for something else. Because just looking at everything, you can't sort of really make head or tail of it. So you need some sort of technique which makes it easier to compare Mm. two things at a time. And uh, at some point, I'll have one item left. (laughs) (laughs) I know, just whatever system works, that's that's great, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now, a few years ago, you've been through several phases of your research and mm. things. You were doing something called Flourishing Fashion. Yes, so that was – so the research paper that was um, published in the academic journals was entitled Flourishing Fashion. And the re- I mean, it's a nice bit of alliteration, so, you know, it kind of worked from a headline point yeah. of view. But flourishing is a really interesting word in positive psychology because we use it to, you know, it's got, first of all, it's got this idea of it's not static, it's not fixed. You are not someone who has flourished and that's it. Flourishing's got this, you know, lovely idea that we're still continuing, that we're going along, that we're able to expand and continue. And I think that's something that that our relationship with clothing can certainly help us do. Um, I'm lost, lost, slightly lost the thread of where I was going with this. But yeah, so that, that flourishing fashion came about because that was the title of the research paper. Hmm. Do you ever stop and think that fashion might be the wrong word for what Absolutely. I, 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 totally. I mean, I, I came, so again, going back to kind of academia, in in um there's there's terms in academia that mean certain things and, and fashion does mean not not in the sort of way we use fashion outs in the outside world but fashion academia has very particular um aspects to it and the easiest way to explain it is 
so if we took talk about dress in academia that generally is looking at what people wear in day-to-day life what people have historically worn in day-to-day life we also talk about clothing again means something different clothing tends to be something we look at not on the body so whereas whereas dress has an association with clothes that people wear and how they wear it clothing is an item of something that's taken off of it being worn so almost like a um, it's to do with object studies mm-hmm. and then of course you've got very much historical um, historical fashion and the history of fashion which again is something completely different so we've got all these different terms in fashion studies in in the academic world of fashion studies and I played around with using lots of them in how I was trying to describe what I was talking about. Ultimately, I used and I chose the word fashion because I think it has a sense of experimenting. I think this idea of dress and clothing can be, I don't know if I say this, but can be quite dull and can have this kind of idea of being fixed. Whereas for me, fashion has a sense of playfulness and 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 kind of movement to it and fluidity that the other terms don't have mm. yeah because if someone asks me they'll say oh are you interested in fashion I was like, no not really <laughs> i like this and this and this but no i so don't follow fashion if you had to have an umbrella term what term would you if what what would you use if you had to kind of quantify in a term I think that's where the menswear thing comes in, which mm. isn't really a very good word either. Because, <laughs> but then if you say, "Oh, I'm into tweed and stuff," then that's sort of super specific again, and mm. it depends how nerdy the person you're talking to mm. is. Absolutely, yeah. So sometimes I guess fashion is, yeah, yeah, I'm into fashion. Yeah, <laughs> let's leave it at that. <laughs> but I, I completely get your point, I, and I did spend a lot of time actually thinking about what that would look like on the outside um but yeah because i guess many people who aren't into fashion have a view on fashion which might not well it would be completely different to someone who is into mm. it which is why mm. a lot of men don't bother with clothes because they're not into fashion mm. and it seems all really trivial and uh, interesting yeah. I mean, I did. I, I moved on from using that flourishing fashion title quite quickly, and so although that was the title of the research and the title of the research paper, by the time I did my first conference on this topic, which was in two thousand and late two thousand seventeen, I used the word wearing well-being, which is kind of what I use more than anything now. Which I think is a brilliant expression. <laughs> So I'd like love for you to say much more about that. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, when the paper was published, it got, I got quite a lot of, of nice, uh, you know, interest from journals and, and people and other academics were saying, oh, you know, we should really put something on to, to share this a bit more and to share the papers. And I presented the paper at some psychology conferences. And then there's a a fantastic she's she's actually become a really good friend but there is a, a psychologist called carolyn there and she developed um 
fashion psychology really without Carolyn Mayer there would not now be degrees in fashion psychology and she started that at the London College of Fashion and we were talking and and she said oh yeah you think you should you should do you should put a conference on about this so I devised this wearing well-being conference in London and brought together different academics and also fashion journalists and people who had different interests in fashion and we just all got together and presented our research and and you know what happens at these kind of conferences did lots of talking amongst ourselves and looked at how we could add some of these aspects that we were researching and and use them kind of within the industry because by this point I'd realized that there was actually quite a strong link between my research and sustainability um, and these kind of ideas of the circular economy within fashion which I hadn't expected to find but there's there's certainly strong links you know when we form stronger relationships with our clothes we tend to buy less we tend to hold on to the clothes we have more we feel more satisfied with the clothes that we've already got and therefore straight away we are being much more sustainable because we are not trying to fulfill those needs with a quick fashion fix um so yeah so so that's kind of where i i used the term wearing well-being conference as an umbrella term for this this conference i put on in london and then that kind of stuck that seemed to express where we were going and, and what we were doing with this kind of research it's very interesting because i have been asking quite a lot of makers a similar question because there's been a lot of talk about buying once buying better mm. uh, which tends to be buy something much more expensive and then keep buying that to be honest um, but from a making point of view how do you make something that isn't only better and longer lasting but is of such a nature that someone will want to use it for mm. a long time i think one of the ways that brands do this very well is when they create a strong brand story um there's a couple of menswear brands and i'm thinking of um stanley biggs so is that the called stanley biggs stanley biggs yeah yeah that's the brand of the pod i think fantastic brand and i think what they do very well is because they have such a strong brand story i think when you buy a piece of their clothing you are really whilst it's new you're buying into a history that let's face it is made up <laughs> but it's made up so well that it's making us feel almost like part of a of an insider or part of a tribe or a connection with other people and so straight away we're forming relationship ideas with that piece of clothing so i think that's one of the ways that brands can do that very well i mean i, I it, it's not it's nothing new in this brands have been doing this for a long time and i think another brand that did it very very well for a very long time not so much anymore is ralph lauren I mean, you know, if you bought a piece of Ralph Lauren clothing, you were putting yourself in that whole mindset and lifestyle of this beautiful place he was creating. You know, this kind of Gatsby, um, American sportswear, preppy, all of those kind of ideas and words. They gave hmm. us that sense of belonging and attachment. And so I think that's that's a way that brands can 
it's clever because it will mean that we will then come back to buy from them. But it will also mean that we do form long lasting attachments to those garments that we buy and we will keep on wearing them. And I think I think branding can be very detrimental. I know there's a lot of negative aspects to that, but I do think if it's if it's utilised carefully and with the right intention, uh, someone else who I think does it really, really well, actually, off the top of my head, is community clothing. I think Patrick does a great job with that. That he gives also us... a friend of the pod. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he has he has a lovely um, way of making us feel very emotive about his clothes about the clothes that community clothing produce. So while Rolf Lauren is kind of aspirational and Stanley Biggs might be working on our sort of retro historical heritage, things were better before, and community clothing is around being part of a community and doing good, I, I think storytelling and branding has become so big now it used to be maybe that brands they made the clothing and they sold the clothing but now marketing has taken over surgically and i didn't really have a question i just wanted to say it (laughs) yeah no i i think like i said i think there's a lot of of negative aspects to that because branding and marketing has been used to encourages to overconsume, and that's something that is not it's not good for us on any level it's not good for us but if we step back from that and see the opposite side of, of branding where actually it's encouraging us to love that that piece of clothing to love that story and to be part of a group of other people who are also part of that story then it really it really is very very good for us because again it comes down and in fact it ticks all three boxes in my kind of little triangle of of um, positive fashion psychology because you know we're, we're getting the relationship side we're wearing on a simplistic level something that makes us feel good and we're also attaching these kind of bigger meanings and purpose because it's part of something bigger so I, i'm not adverse to branding at all i think there's a lot to be said for being part of a brand and and slightly going off on a tangent here i think i've done quite a bit of other research and looked at specifically with menswear a lot of men who were really into music and when they were teenagers and when they were young men you know loved band t-shirts and perhaps were really into kind of subculture stuff be that punk or be that mod or be that whatever kind of music they were interested in and yet as they got older those kind of things got put to one side and Mm, yeah (laughs) (laughs) and then perhaps again at a certain age there's this sense of I'd like to be that person again. How can I incorporate that into my life? And some of them do it again through music. You know, they they might have more time now that they could go to gigs. I've got one particular friend and his wife can't bear the fact that he wears these band T-shirts, but he's still the same 
same dress size as he was when he was 17 and he'll put his band t-shirts on on Saturday night and go to the pub and listen to a local band because he feels great Um, and I think that part of belonging to a a culture or a subculture or even a tiny little niche group that we can do through the clothes we wear is such a lovely connection and can can be really important to us. Hmm. I was just thinking part of the branding that I can enjoy a very very small part of it is the photography because some brands over the years have had some absolutely amazing photography sadly most brands today don't really make a Mm. huge effort there Uh, but some of these old images i mean i wish i had them in high resolution files because i could print posters of them i could hang Mm. them up inside Uh, i mean one of my sort of (laughs) mad things would be actually to display clothes in my home because I think it would be very decorative. Mm. Um, Sadly, there is a certain disagreement on uh, the feasibility of this, so it hasn't happened and probably won't. (laughs) But um, clothes is art. Uh, Which, you know, it is an art form. It is, you know, it's it's a... (sighs) It's sculpture, it's it's craft, it's art, it's, you know, a beautiful piece of clothing has got so much in it, not just as a surface design and visually, but, you know, I'm always really interested. I love turning garments inside out and looking at the stitching Ooh. and just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, that does get very nerdy, doesn't it, when you start to do that? You're like, actually, hang on a minute. Oh, look at that seam. Oh, <laughs> nice bit of binding on there. <laughs> Yeah. quite um back to wearing well-being i think you yes. did something on instagram about that didn't you wasn't that a big sort of hashtag thing yeah it was quite a big hashtag tank oh, hashtag thing for a while which i bought back during lockdown and i was because i was encouraging people you know during that mm. time when on instagram we were and i i still think you know instagram was a fantastic tool that we had during those lockdown periods because I think the relationships and the communication using that platform was just amazing and I can't imagine how isolated I would have felt without those those friendships on there at times so but but yes so I I did bring wearing well-being there and I used to do like different themes every day and get people to you know wear different ideas and and you know come on and talk we do lives and people would come on and talk about clothes and just to create those connections and to create and of course the whole chunk that I did miss out when I was talking about what I had done was launching the magazine um <laughs> I forgot all about that so I had um, I had a print magazine which um came about because I wanted to kind of find a way to make fashion media more positive and more inclusive and deal with some of the issues in fashion media that were had been annoying me for years and I had worked as as a journalist in fashion media but lots of it lots of things irritated me so I decided along with my husband who had spent most of his career working as a designer in Fleet Street um, looking at how we could create a a new sort of positive fashion magazine which we did Um, and uh, yeah we used lots of the concepts around wearing well-being in the magazine as well so I've completely forgotten about that. Now I'm no expert on fashion media but it strikes me that most of the magazines are 
not very wordy, but very heavy on advertising. Yeah. So they're not much of a read. No, they're not much of a read. Yes, you know, some of the, there's so much money in advertising that the ads do look great. But, and it's the ads that support the magazines, you know, a cover price of, for instance, I think Vogue at the moment is about three ninety nine UK Vogue. And, you know, it's just quite quite a thick magazine. But if you dissect it, two thirds of that is ad- advertising. Um, and that that's supporting the fact that we only have to pay a minimal amount for the content that's there. There's a place for, I, I love print journalism. I absolutely love magazines. I really do. But I think, again, it's something that needs an overhaul that could be much more positive, that could be encouraging us to be much more creative and much less, um, consuming much less. But that's never going to go down very well because they're going to lose a lot of their advertising if they actually have that line. So, <laughs> hmm. I used to buy a lot more magazines years ago when I actually thought they were, there was more to read in them. Mm. But if it's a sort of 10-minute flick through and then yeah. it's not worth it. No. no, it's something that you might look at if you're at the hairdressers and that's about it, really. Hmm. Not while I'm at the barber because he's always so chatty that I can uh, never do anything else oh. other than oh. chat to him. So right, okay. excellent barber. Probably better for you in the long run to, to have a proper conversation, but there you go. Pro- probably is, yes, that human contact. Yeah. Um, one of the things you focus on in your book, you have – various favourite items you go through. One of these is stripy shirts. Oh, yes. Yes, my, my I've just, I mean, look, I've got a, not exactly a stripy T-shirt on today, but, you know, I do, I, I love Breton T-shirts and stripy T-shirts, you know, quite classic looking. I'm not talking about rainbow stripes. Um, and, they're you know, it's a very classic piece, isn't it? You know, just like a boat neck Breton navy and white striped t-shirt i can't get enough of them (laughs) can you walk back to where that fascination started i suspect again it goes back to my childhood um i was very lucky we went to the south of france a lot when i was little and that's where we kind of went on holiday um i would have had those kind of navy and white striped t-shirts then there's actually a gorgeous picture of my dad in bizarrely um terry toweling shorts they were clearly a thing for men in the late 60s <laughs> blue hipster terry toweling shorts i think he thought he was james bond and he's got a little navy and white boat neck striped french t-shirt that he's picked up from somewhere and a cigarette um so that for, again definitely for me the stripy t-shirts go right back then to those lovely summer holidays in france from when i was a child that's interesting how I mean, that clearly for you is just something that you really, really love. And you could say it's probably in your DNA or mm. something mm-hmm. like that, but hard to say where it came from. I mean, could, could a, something like that actually be in your DNA? Well, I don't see why not. I mean, I, I, to personally, I don't know that much about my family history, really. Um, my grandfather on my... On my father's side was Spanish. I mean, you know, I, I, he was, he worked, he, he, they were very, very peasant, poor Spanish stock. Um, he worked in the docks in 
uh, northern Spain. Perhaps they, perhaps there was something in there. Maybe he would have at some point worn those kind of sailor T-shirts. I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I think there's definitely a DNA to our interest in clothing. I have never thought about it as my own interest in particular garments necessarily going back further than my parents. However, my one of my daughters recently did some research into my mother's family, which I know knew very little about. And my uh, my mother's grandfather, so my great great grandfather, was actually a military tailor mm. and worked in Savile Row. Um, and I didn't know this at all. So I was quite fascinated to think that that had been very much part of our of our family route. So. Oh, interesting, interesting. Um, so apart from your stripy stripy tops, um, other articles you you pick out for special consideration mm-hmm. are more out there, uh, more extrovert, maybe. Oh, I can't think what you could be talking about. <laughs> No, I had no. old boots. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think there's a special meaning to that? So, I mean, I, I've are, the story is more extrovert. Not necessarily, actually, because you know that I talk about how um, I both love love a man in a suit, but how I also quite like suits myself. Um, and I, I absolutely, I can feel very, very happy in a grey trouser suit, a black trouser suit, you know, very simple, um, in some ways you might even term dull, certainly not extrovert clothing, although I might perhaps not wear them in, in without a bit of a flourish of something else. Um, I think black can be a, a whole black outfit can actually make me feel i'm not talking about the way i look but to make me feel amazing there are times when wearing black absolutely is completely the right color for me at that moment on that day so yeah um i don't necessarily think happy clothes need to be extravagant no so that was a a bit of a blind avenue but but, i mean they can they, they you know that's i'm just talking about for me personally as i say certainly go through go right the way back to my research the, the a couple of the people in the research did actually say you know colorful clothing is what they need to wear Col- i mean i think one of the terms that um susie the oldest uh, participant used was color is her prozac and mm. she knows if she you know now if she puts all these bright clashing colors on it just gives her that complete uplift that she needs occasionally I'll do that occasionally I'll do a load of clashing prints and colors for me personally I feel it's too attention seeking and considering that I've got very used to presenting at huge conferences and talking about myself and putting myself out there I'm not particularly an extrovert person (laughs) so I find it a little bit uncomfortable wearing clothes that kind of go da da. I, I find that, and I do it because it's kind of occasionally fun to wear a different side of myself. But I, I, it makes me feel quite uncomfortable. Mm, interesting, because I'm by nature pretty shy and introverted. When I put together my cute little outfit for going to town on Saturdays, 
Um, not being noticed isn't high on the list. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but of course, it's also a bit embarrassing if you realise you are being noticed. Yeah. So, really, maybe I'd be just as happy if I put on my cute little outfit and spent the day at home. Other because people's reaction a... isn't essential, but if someone asks, I mean, I can bore them to tears uh, hmm. talking about it. That tension is fascinating. Because I suspect sometimes what we want when we dress like that, or what we, now, is it going to be a want or a need? I need to think this through as I'm talking about it. Whatever that, that might be, I might have to come back to those terms in a minute, but we might want the focus, we might want the attention. And other days we will walk out wearing an outfit that we know is going to get attention because let's face it, we know we look good and we know people are going to, say something but actually we just want to be allowed to feel like that without the attention we want to be able to enjoy looking this good feeling this good about ourselves and we want everyone else to just leave us alone <laughs> so it's it, it's it's a, a dilemma it's a difficult it's a difficult one you know when we enjoy wearing clothes how do we balance that need between visibility and invisibility hiding and revealing and this tension is i mean psychologists have have been talking about this for years so if we go back to and gosh the pe the paper is going to go out of my head as i'm talking about it henry james not the novelist but the fashion the the, the psychologist he um he did he wrote a paper looking at this exact thing about how what we hide and what we reveal and what we choose to hide and what we reveal in our clothes and that must have been in something like 1895 or something like that i mean i'm waffling a bit here because i haven't got that information to my fingertips but it's around around that time <laughs> mm -hmm. i have another psychological thought that came into my mind as you were saying that um I've often thought I should write a little book and give to my children with sort of the wisdom of the elders, which they could then ignore and pick up later in life and say, oh, yeah, our dad was right. But one of the, the points is sort of don't sit around waiting for something to happen. If you mm. want something to happen, go out there and do it. And I have this feeling I've been waiting all my life for something to happen. So putting on a uh, noticeable outfit and going out is kind of, like throwing bait in the lake, trying to attract fish. It's trying to make something happen. Mm. I don't know what, but it's, I think it's a try, trying to be noticed. Mm. Uh, Which doesn't sound we, introvert at all. But. No, it doesn't. But, I mean, yeah, again, introvert and extrovert are... Um, Psychological terms are actually are probably a little bit dated, but we. Do, if you think about this on a, as a, a, a biological level, mm. we want to be noticed because the survival of the species is dependent upon it. Yeah, we, we you know that's the only way to to continue to to 
propagate humanity. But we also have to be careful about being noticed because, you know, from a biological, if we if we got the wrong attention back in those days when there were predators around, we wouldn't have lasted very long either. So going right back, there's always been this tension between being seen and not being seen. And that's going back to our DNA. You know, that's still part of our makeup, isn't it? That's why we still have these um, fight or flight uh, yeah, fight, fight, fight or flight or, you know, these fear responses that we don't particularly need anymore. We still have those wired into us. And I think this idea between being needing to be seen and, and, and having aspects of ourselves more hidden go back to that same biological psychology of who we are. So, you know, in, our, in this brainstem bit here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't have anything to follow up with. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a little cut there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Should we come back to something more clothing term termed than? <laughs> I was I had on my pad here hits and misses mm. because I mean you post a lot of photos on Instagram. You're very visual. Do you ever scroll back on your feed and sort of think, "Oh, well, that wasn't a good one," or "Oh, that was a good one." I don't ever think about that about clothes. I mean, I think I think sometimes, God, that was boring. I mean, not generally about the image, sometimes about the image, but more often than not about the thought process that I've put out there with the little, you know, captions that go with the images, which I do tend to, I'm a writer, you know, I tend to write a lot. My, my Underneath my Instagram pictures sometimes, it's like reading a, a short essay. Um, so I do sometimes think I'm boring. Um... I don't think any more. I think that what I wear in terms of hits and misses at all, actually. I mean, I can... So, for instance, I, I live in the country now. I don't live in London anymore. I live in deepest, darkest Dorset. And I have a dog. And Dorset's very, very muddy. So quite often I will, you know, I will go out in the morning in dog-walking clothes and it might be that I'm still wearing those clothes at lunchtime because I've been busy and doing other things and I'll be I'll have muddy jeans on or you know but I'll feel as good in those clothes and as as successful I suppose if you like in the outfit that I've put together just because that's the way I put clothes together so I always I always feel good in that respect so and that's it kind of sounds a bit I'm not blowing my own trumpet here, but you know, I don't wear clothes that I don't like and that don't make me feel good. Right. And you're confident. I suppose I am confident in how I dress, yeah. I wouldn't say generally I was a confident person, but I would definitely say because I've built up such a repertoire over the years of having thought about clothes and thought about how I connect with those clothes. And, you know, I've spent I spend a lot of time thinking through my clothes. I don't necessarily spend a lot of time putting outfits together or anything like that but I I know now and I know that sometimes if I get dressed in the morning and I'll just be like "Mm, it might be a piece I love but on that day it doesn't work for me for whatever reason I will take it off I wouldn't dream of going out wearing something that made me feel didn't make me didn't make me feel right didn't match my mood I suppose Mm. I'm sort of thinking about 
social media and why we actually use it. Um, why are we so obsessed with posting our photos and documenting what we're doing? And I think for many young people, it might be seeking validation, maybe for us older people as well. Mm. Uh, it is quite strange when you've posted a certain <laughs> thousands of photos mm. with mm. captions, just sort of looking back, it becomes quite a diary. I think that's really, I think that's a really important aspect of social media. And I think it's really very helpful. And I think there's lots of things, again, with social media that encourages us to compare with others. But I think using it as a diary, seeing our progress, seeing how we might subtly change, just, again, I mean, really, if you think about it, our Instagrams have become a a lovely bank of data for us to look at and perhaps pull out themes for ourselves and work out what's going on there and, and what works and what doesn't work for us. So I think, I think actually, Instagram particularly, is, it can be a really good tool for us personally to use, to just give a little bit of analysis and, and, and think about what we're doing in our lives. I do wonder whether in the future it will be our Instagram accounts that they write books based on. You have these books about the letters of uh, William Shakespeare or Churchill's letters or whatever, and then it'll be sort of Instagram of Rebecca Smith <laughs> published in hardback. So, <laughs> I'm um, it, it's it's it is fascinating because I'm actually I've, I've got I'm writing two novels at the moment. I tend to write fiction and non-fiction concurrently and I sort of dip in and out of how I'm going to write I'm not the kind of writer that sits down and just will work through writing one book because that's not the way my mind works and one of the books I'm writing at the moment is based on someone's Instagram account it's a novel based on what they're showing the world in their through their Instagram account any murders no <laughs> a few fashion crimes, but no murders. <laughs> oh, oh. Speaking of fashion crimes, that reminds me. Are you into seasonal colour analysis at all? No. <laughs> we are very into it now. My daughter picked it okay. up and has started doing it. And so we've been sort of a bit obsessed about it. But watching telly now, and then we're sort of, we would just look at each other suddenly and say, no, that's the wrong colour for her. Ooh. So is this the this is the spring, summer, autumn, winter, yeah. whether you're cool or warm, those kind of things. So there's yeah. uh, the idea is that there's, for instance, a red for everybody, but it will depend on the tones underneath the colours as to whether that shade is still yeah. suiting you. Is that right? Okay, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's all I know about it, I'm afraid. Yeah. I don't know more it's, than that. It's actually quite fascinating, but... Um, speaking of crimes, uh, I don't know if you've seen Murders murders in the Building, Only Murders in the Building, American uh, TV series with uh, Steve Martin, Selena Gomez and some other celebrities. I've not seen it, sorry, no. It's, it's fantastic. It's really good. But Selena Gomez is very clearly wearing stuff that is her colours and stuff that isn't because she's inherited all her grandma's or auntie's woolly jumpers. So she keeps changing them. And you can sort of tell which ones work for her or not. <laughs> So, uh, but if you're not into it, then you're not into it. But it yeah, is, sorry, it it's is not something I know anything about. It is quite fun, but for I me, know it's. 
I know it's become a, a much bigger thing because it fell out of fashion for a while, didn't it? And it's really it's picked up again. Big on TikTok, I think. Mm, that's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. And so forth. But it does illustrate that for men, especially, it is a bit tricky because the colours that suit you are so specific. Mm. Say men's shirts are available in what four colours? Yeah. So it makes it a bit tricky to find if you're going to have the stuff that really makes you radiant and look mm. with a glow, whatever. Mm. Um, takes a bit more shopping around although I'm sure there will be brands because it's become quite big again I'm sure there'll be brands that will be thinking about actually producing lines in those seasonal groupings so you'll know if you're a spring for instance that that particular section of shirts will be the ones that you can should be going to I think maybe more for women than for men, though, because really? it comes back to men being, uh, I see for men, uh, an unlimited selection of blue shirts in blue, the same yeah. colour. Do you feel that, I mean, I, I personally, let me start this again. I personally, um, when I have both created editorial for magazines or created catwalk shows and produced catwalk shows, I have never really had this differentiation between menswear and womenswear. I've always felt that clothes should actually, to a certain extent, be be flexible enough that we can interchange them. Um, and those limitations in menswear, I have always been frustrated by uh, if I was creating content for a menswear page on a mag- in a magazine. Do you think that that is looking to change? I mean, I see that sort of younger generation are also frustrated by this differentiation. But do you think the majority of men actually prefer to have this very designated idea that they, you know, menswear is where they go and it's just for them? I think that depends a lot on the type of man, maybe the age but very much the shape Mm. because I see a lot of brands now who are sort of proudly unisex. To me, that works in one of two ways. Either you have clothes that don't actually fit anyone. Oversized large, which for certain styles of clothes is completely Mm -hmm. okay. Or you have clothes that fit a very, very narrow type of body where you're sort of kind of a bit in between. Mm. And I see brands that are that sort of claim to be unisex and you see the people working there and they're all basically the same body shape, regardless mm. of whether they're men yeah, or women. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think I think you're absolutely right there. There is a, there is always going to be a fit issue. Um but if we move on to a sort of business model where we're actually making clothes to order. Yes. So you see a style yeah. and they'll make it for you so they can make it in a the bumps here or there, mm. then it's feasible, mm. yes. And and that as a as a fashion industry business model is fascinating that brands are now doing this going back to this idea of made to order. I think and and not doing it in a horrendously expensive way actually making it very accessible. I think it's a really good idea. Once you sort of cut out the wholesale part of it Mm. and you see that you can't order 10,000 at a time, 
Mm. I mean, you can do it, and it doesn't have to be insanely expensive. Mm. Uh, brands like Lane Forty Five in London, yeah, fantastic stuff, and it isn't that expensive. Yeah, and then going back to getting things that sort of you really like, being able to select style the fabric and having it made so it fits you that is a good starting point it is absolutely yeah it's that's going that will be transformative in the industry in actually and of course it won't be everything won't be able to be like that but to actually in that almost like that mid-range market where there is a slight issue with transparency because so much of those mid-ranges are actually whilst they look great and some of the finishes are put on locally they're still being made in huge factories Mm. in the far east so that to have that area be transformed in that way and you know it's it's such a good business model not just from a sustainability point of view in terms of you know you're getting more longevity out of the items but we are also creating a local aspect to keeping the to the skill, keeping the skills in a particular area, because you know, as as you and I both know, they're the, the losing those skill sets in pockets of industry where the textile industry and the men's and women's wear have been traditionally created. They've just dissipated so much, and there's so little. And and I know, you know, going back to community clothing, I know Patrick had one of these a problem himself with actually making sure that the workforce he had locally had the skills that were needed because whilst they used to be there these people had had moved away Um, so to bring that back into localities where something can be small-scale manufactured in a way that's not wasteful not excessive not having to travel a horrendous amount of air miles you know it, it just it's just win-win isn't it there's so much so much excitement to be got from that kind of model i guess the losers are the sort of wholesale industry that have been sort of making the middleman markup there when yeah. they're cut out but um i'm pretty sure they'll find somewhere else to utilize their wholesale skills <laughs> Yes, no, uh, yes. Maybe we can talk a bit more about favourite items. I was was trying to come up with some... um, Have you got a favourite item? I have got at least one I could think of. Well, tell me about that. Which fills me with happiness whenever I wear it. It's a a Gloverall duffel uh, that they made a few years ago as part of a sort of 1951 celebrationary thing. Mm-hmm. And they made it in a mod style. So it's navy blue. Yeah. It's got the sort of British trims on it, and it came with lots of patches and badges already on it. And it's kind of so ridiculous that every time I put it on, I just <laughs> chuckle. <laughs> <laughs> it looks tremendous. And it's just, now, why did they make that? Someone at Gloverall must have thought, this is going to be so cool. This and, is going to make people happy. And it does. I mean, I've never been a mod. don't particularly like mod music. But just all the patches and stuff, it just looks so great because mm. it looks so different. Yeah. And I think maybe that's one of the things I like, things that aren't standard. Yeah. There has to be something about them. Yeah. Yeah, I think 
that idea that um you know again it comes down to that tension doesn't it between what's great about an item like that is you know it's a relatively standard regulation you know duffel coat's not that out there but the minute you start to just tweak it slightly or put something a little bit different on it it changes the whole what that's saying and and the story with that has just changed by just adding that that bit of difference um and i think that's a that's lovely in clothes that we can take something that's you know again for me perhaps with my breton t-shirts i wouldn't just very often wear an avian white striped t-shirt with my vintage levi's which is one of the things that make me really really happy 501s they make me ecstatically happy um i'd do something with it so I might put four or five brooches on one side or I might I don't know tie a scarf around my head in a with a a bow or I might just wear some really big earrings with it and that point of difference just I guess is for me what changes it from something that's just an avian white striped t-shirt that you might see lots of people walking around see what you said there illustrates so well how many more possibilities women have I mean, imagine the guy working in his off business, his business suit in his office, and all he can do is a cheeky tie or maybe some yeah. cufflinks, yeah, maybe some socks if he's funky drinking. socks, yeah, <laughs> pocket square, yeah. But you know, you're going to reach the limits pretty quickly there before you're <laughs> judged by your equals. But yeah, I mean, even being able to. Um, add those little personality touches though and perhaps doing it in a kind of consciously rebellious way is sometimes enough to make someone smile yeah. i was inspired by the, the pins on the glove roll duffel and i started ordering pins uh, from ebay you can get the most remarkable ones really cheaply so i'd still be wearing a pin for say a, a newcastle women's bowls club <laughs> <laughs> because they're so beautiful, but you add a few in just to see if anyone will actually notice. <laughs> My little subversive way, I guess. So that you said you were more so that was one item. What's another thing that you've got that I do like waistcoats because I think they're a very nice way of adding some um, interest and being practical. Mm. I have been on a big Harris Tweed thing. Not only Harris Tweed, but also Donegal Tweed. Uh, but that's been more of a searching out, replacing, adding to get the best bits. So it's, it's hard to pick out really favorite mm. ones. I mean, the Donegal Tweed waistcoat I'm wearing yeah. here now, bought secondhand a couple of years ago, and it's just wonderful. I think the guy who owned it before me is dead, but these things happen. Yeah, I mean, some people I know do still have this idea that it's a bit weird wearing other people's clothes, especially if you know the chances are that someone's going to, whoever owns them once is is going to be dead. But, yeah. I come across a lot of people who have a real problem with um, secondhand clothes in general, just the fact that it has been used before is really icky. Yeah, yeah. People do find that sort of ickiness about it, don't they? But they will happily buy something brand new and wear it immediately with no regard for the journey that garment has taken. Who has handled it, yeah. 
yeah, yeah. And that to me is pretty icky. Yeah. And I know how hard it is to take, a, say, a brand new shirt, which is so crisp and nice, and then stick it in the washing machine for its first wash and it comes out all crumply. And <laughs> then you have to get the iron out or the steamer. Yeah. Well, at least it is clean then. Yeah. Mm. But no, it is interesting, isn't it? That that really visceral sense of almost repulsion that some people have to second-hand clothing. Hmm. And I also see, I mean, I live in a fairly small town and we have clothes shops here, but there's nothing there that interests me, which hmm. I don't know if I'm just being nerdy and elitist and uh, it's beneath me, but... Hmm. I don't know. I feel a little bit ashamed. I'm very lucky that where we live in Dorset, it's a real centre for... There's a, there's a big vintage market here, so it's a real centre for vintage and pre-loved clothes. So there is, there's... If I do feel that... I don't buy clothes very often anymore because I've got so many. Um, but if I do feel the need, there's always someone that I can buy something second-hand or pre-loved from and there's a couple of tiny sort of check well there's two two clothes shops that are kind of chain store shops um but I, you know i wouldn't even look in in the window and i don't really think anyone i don't know how they survive here because i don't see anyone ever go in it's quite an eccentric town and people do by and large dress really interestingly i have a feeling i could almost guess where you live how well do you know Dorset? Not at all, but if you said you were living near Totnes, I would say yes. It's not far from Totnes. Totnes is actually um, Devon, but it's not far from there at all, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I know that's um, a sort of vintage hub. It is. It's The Totnes is a little bit more um, tie-dye vintage, for want of a better expression. It makes me sound oh, very judgmental. Very specific. But it's that kind of hippie vintage vibe. Whereas where I live in Bridport is quite it's quite tweedy. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that sounds um, nice. There are some really there's there's one in particular very very beautiful vintage shop here called Dress, and it is very very high end, really incredible, almost museum level vintage women's wear. Um, we're phenomenally lucky. I, I, although I know them in there and I go in there, I, would ne- I wouldn't buying anything in there particularly because it's very, 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 very pricey. So it's very much special occasion clothes. But um, so we've got that, we've got that, and then we've got a really, we've got a vintage market on a Saturday with some fantastic pre-loved and vintage traders. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting little town, actually. Yeah. Mm. Just make a note of it. Now, I sense that we're sort of veering all over the place here. Yes. So if we could just get back to the book. To the book. For the closing, uh, for the closing yeah. moments. Uh, in, in summary, how would you sum up the book? Oh, I was really worried you were going to ask me this. Oh. I find this the most difficult question. I've been asking people that have been reading it to sum it up for me because I find it so difficult should i sum it up for so, you uh, that would be wonderful if you have a way of summing up that would be great i'd just say i mean the happy dresser is a book by rebecca smith where she chronicles her uh, upbringing through clothes her relationships with her sisters mothers uh, no sister mother daughters 
through making clothes, through keeping clothes, um, the clothes that have meant a lot to her, um, both from the perspective of clothes themselves. So there's a chapter where the shoes are telling the story, and there's a chapter about the long, uh, fancy golden boots we've mentioned. And uh, basically the meaning clothes have had in her life, both good and bad. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a good time. I think the, the meaning clothes have had in my life is a, is definitely what's conveyed in the book, yeah. I suppose it's a kind of memoir in some ways um, because there's so much of me in it. But I also hope that in writing like that and in telling these stories, I am encouraging other people to look into their own relationships with clothes, their own wardrobe stories um, and learn a little bit more about themselves because I think that's what's so interesting is that when we start to delve into those garments that we own and that we love and that we wear a lot they're actually telling us a hell of a lot about who we are and where we've come from and sometimes also where we want to go wise words <laughs> uh, i think you can now do me the favor of um finishing up the podcast oh gosh that seems a bit of a responsibility um what what do i need to say so bye-bye <laughs> And thank you for being here today. And, uh... oh, yeah. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose I should have a bit of a plug for my book and I should actually say that um, at the moment, because I'm so anti-Amazon, the book isn't available to purchase online on Amazon. You can only purchase it currently through my own website, which is RebeccaWeavesmith.com. Um, it is available in, in bookstores in the UK, but not yet in Europe or the US. It will be in a few months. I'll add the links in the show notes so Fabulous. you can find it. Okay. Super duper. Thank you so much. That was a really great chat. Really enjoyed that. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot for now. And that was all for this week's Scumology. Uh, if you hit subscribe or follow, you'll automatically be able to download next week's episode as soon as it is published. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, I would appreciate a review and rating. If you listen on Spotify, you can leave a rating. If you'd like to get in touch with me, my email is welldresseddad at gmail.com. You can also find me on Instagram as welldresseddad. Kind of predictable, I know. As usual, uh, links and details in, in the show notes, also including a link to the Patreon details. Well, there you go. So, catch you again next week, and bye-bye for now. Bye.